Hello, and welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on July 9th, 2021. Sarah Fern Fitzsimmons is the Director of Restoration for the American Chestnut Foundation at Penn State University. She has worked with the foundation since 2003, assisting chestnut growers and researchers throughout the Appalachian Mountains. Born and raised in Southern West Virginia, Sarah studied biology at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. She then received a master's degree in forest ecology and resource management from Duke University's Nicholas School. After a short stint as an editorial assistant at All About Beer magazine, Sarah returned to the forestry field where she has been ever since. Sarah hopes her research and professional work will facilitate long-term conservation and restoration of native tree species at risk from exotic pests and diseases. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Sarah. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Such exciting stuff going on with the Chestnut Foundation. Can you give us a little bit of background about how you got involved with this uh, organization at Penn State? Yeah, absolutely. So I started as an intern when I was in grad school back over 20 years ago. I'm going to date myself a little bit. But uh, yeah, I started as a grad student studying the American chestnut. I had an interest in exotic and invasive pests and pathogens. And what better species and pathogen to study than the American chestnut? And so I I worked for a summer in Brogue, Pennsylvania, uh, in South Central Pennsylvania, and I traveled around the state, uh, New Jersey, down to Virginia, just studying the American chestnut and the efforts of the American Chestnut Foundation to conserve uh, native germplasm and uh, work to try and breed resistance into the native tree to get it restored. And that was 20 years ago. I graduated, got my master's degree, and they created a position at Penn State for me to to have full-time shortly thereafter, and I've been there ever since. Wow, congratulations. That's a really great story. Thank you. Especially when you have a passion for a plant like the American chestnut. Yeah, and you know, the American chestnut, it's it's so charismatic. I've, I've heard it termed a charismatic megaflora, and you know, much like its fauna compatriots, right? The the river otter or the giant panda, uh, the American chestnut can can really be uh, sort of a poster child for resilient and, and healthy forest in the eastern U.S. It's kind of hard to imagine that the tree in some of the photos that you see in books 
that the tree could be so big and and then succumb to a disease like that and bring the whole culture of the tree and the people in the United States to their knees because of its loss. Yeah, I was just going to say the American chestnut was, you know, it wasn't a single species that, that the ecosystem relies upon. I think it sort of highlights how important diversity is, but certainly it, it left a huge hole because of its size, because of its ability to fill so many different niches in both the ecosystem and the economy, particularly Appalachia. It was it was such a vital part of the economy from the, the lumber and the nuts that it provided. It was called a cradle-to-grave species because it could be used for cribs, coffins, and everything in between. And um, while it wasn't the biggest tree on the landscape or the fastest growing, you know, there, there are other species that could grow bigger, but the, the largest documented tree was 15 feet in diameter, which is pretty darn big. And, and to be able to provide all of those uses, I, I, I'm hard pressed to think of another tree species that could fill all of those uses, both ecologically and economically. Um, it certainly left a big hole. One of the things that I... I remember reading and seeing pictures of were people carrying picnic basket-like baskets that were carried into the woods so that they could go and pick their fall chestnuts. And, you know, it wasn't just one ethnicity. It wasn't one type of people that were picking it. It was everybody. It was considered to be an American fall event. And we lost all of that wonderful connectivity to nature by losing this one tree, you know, in our what we would classify as a food forest that this tree provided, not only for us, but for the deer and for the turkey and for quail. And the list goes on and on and on and on. It wasn't just a human tree that, you know, wanted to eat the nuts. It was everybody. Absolutely. There's an estimate that our eastern forests lost upwards of 30% or more of the hard mast production. So hard mast things like acorns and, and beech nuts and hickories and things like that, that our forests lost 30% of their mast production with the loss of the chestnut and, and the oaks, which largely took over that forest niche. The oaks haven't been able to make up for it because they, they aren't as prolific as, as American chestnut. And so there's the, the wildlife connection, but the, the personal cultural connection. I mean, seeing about chestnuts roasting on an open fire every Christmas time, and I think a lot of people don't really recognize that that was, <laughs> that was really a thing where people would go out, they would go chestnutting. There's, there's a great photo of people going chestnutting in Fairmont Park in, in Philadelphia. And so it, was, it, it had this cross-cultural connection from the, the urban area in Philly and New York to the rural areas of where I'm from in southern West Virginia in southwestern Virginia, you know, it could really fill that niche, fill that purpose. Like you said, you know, it wasn't just one culture or one type of person who, who were collecting and roasting chestnuts. It really crossed a lot of different boundaries. Such hopeful stories there, Sarah. One quick story. I, I um, am the uh, grandson of an arborist who grew up in southeastern PA, and the job that got him into the tree business was taking down dead chestnuts. Oh, wow. So he was a scrawny 17-year-old, and there's a rather iconic photo of him and what you just said about diameter and circumference. He would tell me those stories, like 12 men would hold hands uh, and could not get around some of the uh, trunks at, at ground level. 
Yeah, so some of those stories are really incredible. And I love that you brought up that that point about, you know, people getting involved in forestry or, or that background because of the loss of the species. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, were people devastated economically by the loss of the chestnut? And, and to some degree they were, but it's really hard to tease apart what happened because of the loss of the American chestnut, because a lot of that coincided with the Great Depression. And southeastern Pennsylvania was one of the first places hit in, in the mid-1900s, so they wouldn't have made that connection. But further in the heart of the range, West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, you know, the loss of the chestnut coincided with the Depression. A lot of people actually made it through the depression by cutting and selling chestnut timber. So it's it's pretty interesting to start, you know, following the the timeline and the chronology of of the loss of the chestnut and and the the history following it. You know what's really interesting I find uh, that we know that a lot of the barns were made with chestnut because they had this enormous wide thick wood. It was good construction, timber. And now, 100 years later, when barns are coming down in reclaimed salvage yards, you'll find these huge beams of chestnut. And you you look at it and you think to yourself, I've never seen anything that big because we haven't seen anything that big since the chestnut disappeared. Unless you go to the West Coast and see the sequoia and the redwood, but nothing like that. They, they are impressive. And I think similarly, the rot resistance too is, is also impressive. I enjoyed going to Cape Cod a couple years ago. And, you know, a lot of people go to Cape Cod to go to the beach or, or go shopping or, you know, vacation. And my, my sole um, uh, goal while on the Cape was to go visit one of the last standing American chestnut telephone poles in the U.S. <laughs> that's been standing since 1920. And you can still see it if you, if you go to Harwich, the Harwich Golf Course in, on, on the Cape. You can still see this this last American chestnut pole with the various stamps, you know, that, that the uh, inspectors use to make sure the pole isn't still in good working order. It's fascinating to really kind of get this peek into history of what those poles used to look like. But here you have a pole that's never been treated with creosote. It's been freestanding for um, upwards of 100 or more years. And, and there it still stands. And, and that's a testament um, to the rot resistance and, and how big these things were compared to other species. So it had the rot resistance, but then along came that blight and the Achilles heel was very quickly discovered. Yeah, so uh, like a lot of invasive pests and pathogens that we're dealing with in in the U.S. today, the chestnut blight fungus originated in China. Uh, It was brought over unknowingly on actually Japanese chestnut stalks in the 1800s. While people enjoyed American chestnuts, American chestnuts tend to be pretty small, the, the nut itself. Japanese chestnuts are much larger. Um, they, they can be the size of a fist, if not bigger. And so people were, were importing Japanese chestnuts at the time. You'll see a lot of nursery advertisements in the 1800s for these beautiful trees from Japan. So, so the chestnut blight fungus was brought over because of that importation. And the American chestnut had never seen this pathogen, had not evolved uh, defenses against it and succumbed very quickly. We we know of very few individuals out of an estimated 4 billion trees that were on the landscape in the 1800s. Uh, we know of maybe a couple dozen that actually have some sort of resistance and every single other tree is completely susceptible to this fungal disease. I remember reading about the gentleman or group of people who were involved at the inception of the disease here. I think it was at the National Arboretum. 
where someone said, well, you know, this disease can't be stopped. And people were like, no, we need to cut, we need to save them. Let's cut trees down. And, you know, when do you know when not to do something because there isn't a control? And when do you know when you can do something when controlling it that way? And I'm thinking of our insects, you know, the Asian longhorn beetle, the emerald ash borer, the, you know, the gypsy moth, the, all of them. And our trees have been able to come back from those. But for this disease and, and even the, the Dutch elm disease, that too was just as devastating in another century for our American elms. And it, it was disease-based rather than insect-based. And it, it's just devastating. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting. So when do you throw your hands up and say, say, I give up? And I think if you look at the history of people trying to save the American chestnut or bring it back, it, it ebbed and flowed. So in, in 1911, uh, Pennsylvania was the first state to do anything about this problem. It, it really devastated the, the ecology, the economy. And the governor at the time said, well, you know, I, I think Pennsylvania, you know, which has always been very much about its forestry, we, we are Penn's woods. So, you know, I, I think that we have a special connection to forestry in general. But the state of Pennsylvania set up $250,000, uh, which is a lot of money in 20, uh, 1911, and uh, set up the Chestnut Tree Blight Commission. To your point, they worked on trying to cut these fire breaks of, of dead trees to try and stop the progression of the fungus. Uh, there are other, over nine volumes of transcripts of the proceedings of that Chestnut Tree Blight Commission. All of those are online. So if any of your listeners need some light reading <laughs> as a companion piece to this podcast, I, I recommend checking out. There are some amazing photographs that uh, people took from 1911 to 1914. So about after three years, they realized, well, you know, none of what, none of the tools they had worked. But then you see people taking up the mantle. The USDA then started a breeding program. They started importing Chinese chestnuts and started a breeding program and none of that worked well. So then in the 1950s, during the nuclear era, people started irradiating chestnuts, turning them into nuclear reactors and hoping that, you know, resistance would be mutated. Well, that didn't work. And so then in the 1980s, the American Chestnut Foundation started up with its breeding program. And then you had SUNY ESF, uh, uh, who, who were working with the New York chapter of the American Chestnut Foundation, started working with genetic engineering and transgenic technologies. And you have people trying to battle the blight and make it sick. And do you see this ebb and flow over time, over the past over 100 years? You know, people would certainly give up on a certain technique. But I, I think because the American Chestnut filled such an important niche and has such this cultural tie and, and charisma, people never gave up on the idea of, of bringing it back and putting it back into the forest. I reread Gabriel Popkin's piece in The Times and then, of course, the piece in The Week, which is where I got reacquainted and, and found out about you. I have to say that agency co a cooperation, at least just reading it through two or three media pieces, it's impressive that the Chestnut Foundation, SUNY, Syracuse, and Penn State are all tapped in and, and at least, you know, from my viewpoint, a lot of cooperation. One devil's advocate kind of question, do you think that the USDA is going to be a partner as far as moving things forward? You mean from a regulatory standpoint? Yeah, regulatory and also, you know, green lighting introductions as they become available. 
Oh, I, I think so. I mean, so the U.S. Forest Service, a, a, a subsidiary of the USDA, has been an amazing partner since, geez, we signed a formal MOU in the early thousands. So the U.S. Forest Service has always been an enthusiastic supporter of chestnut restoration. Um, we have amazing working relationships with most state forestry agencies, uh, Pennsylvania DCNR, the Game Commission. Uh, we work really closely with Maryland DNR, Virginia DOF. New York DEC, and I'm just naming a few, you know, around here, we work really closely with all of those agencies. The USDA, the EPA, the FDA, they all hold regulatory authority over genetic engineering. You know, I, I think everybody is absolutely supportive of, of the work that we're doing from a transgenic standpoint. And, you know, if and when, we're, we're cautiously optimistic that, that the tree will gain approval. I absolutely think that the USDA and its subsidiaries will be, uh, NRCS, people like that, will be wholly behind getting getting these trees back in the landscape. You know, my wife actually had an interesting question. I said, you know, we're going to be interviewing uh, Sarah Fitzsimmons from Penn State. And I had read the article when we were up at my mother-in-law's a few weeks ago. And she wondered, do we think that the the new introductions will have some resiliency in terms of what trees are facing with with the climate change and the movement of USDA hardiness map. That that is a great question and something that is absolutely on on the forefront of of our breeding and and restoration work, both for our traditional breeding program and for uh, genetic engineering and transgenic work. We uh, strive to incorporate a minimum of 1,000 wild-type American chestnuts to, to diversify those blight-resistant and blight-tolerant lawns. And for exactly the point that you bring up, will a restoration population have enough diversity, have enough strength to wade out these long-term millennial-type problems like climate change? You know, one of our biggest concerns is that the real pocket of diversity of American chestnut and many of our eastern native tree species is the southern Appalachian. And that is what is most threatened by climate change. So our highest priority is to rescue and conserve both in situ and ex situ, uh, both in the forest and in, in conservation orchards. Our highest priority is to pull material that has the highest amount of diversity for the species and conserve that as long-term as possible. So breeding on trees that we find in the Southern Appalachian Mountains, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Tennessee, pull germplasm out either through nuts or through grafting cyan wood and putting them in orchards in Pennsylvania, New York, Ohio, so that we can have that set of diversity to work with both short-term and long-term. If we can breed on a thousand unique American chestnut lines from across the native range, uh, we'll believe we'll be giving these restoration populations the tools they need to be sustainable long-term. That's really a fascinating look at what you're doing, going down to the deep south to pull this genetic material. And I'm thinking to myself, how wonderful an example is this and this same kind of methodology, how is this being used elsewhere in the world? Are you working with any other organizations globally that may have a particular problem with a particular species in their area? Well, so I'd say, you know, most of our closest collaborators are, are primarily in the eastern U.S., folks who are dealing with hemlock or ash or you know, these, these native species that are facing similar 
challenges. We have very good cross communication of, you know, when, when they develop something, you know, we try to incorporate it and, and vice versa. We, we do have great collaborators uh, across those species. From a global standpoint, people in Europe with European chestnut, uh, European chestnut, Castania sativa, faces many of the same challenges that, that American chestnut, Castania dentata does. They have a lot of problems with Phytophthora root rot and chestnut blight and um, many other things. So there's a lot of cross-communication, um, again, of techniques as they, they develop new techniques, for example, they just developed a way of uh, cloning phytophthora-resistant rootstock uh, through somatic embryogenesis, and that's a technique that we have yet to create for American chestnut, at least at scale, at the scale that they have. So there's actually an International Chestnut Congress that was um, established by the International Society of Horticultural Science, the ISHS. And so that International Chestnut Congress is where um, chestnut scientists around the world come together to try and face some of these problems. Um, so I'd say it's definitely a push and a pull of these innovations um, across the seven to nine chestnut species that are uh, across the globe. And I guess we can't be selfish either when we discover something we have to be more in the mode of sharing and educating rather than hoarding and hiding. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think that that's the difference with the American chestnut and, and, and particularly a lot of the innovations that have happened at, at SUNY ESF. And I, I want to give a, a huge amount of credit to the scientists there, Bill Powell, Chuck Maynard, um, Andy Newhouse, Linda, all the, all the people up there. They have been very open and transparent about the work that they're doing. And since the inception, this has always been about bringing it back to the forest. It, it's not about making money or trying to commercialize product. You know, who even knows what, what the market share could be from a, from a financial perspective. But the goal has always been restoration of a species for healthy and resilient forests. And so the, the way that we get there is going to be by sharing this information, by sharing the trees, getting it out in the landscape, and, and what we talked about in the beginning, where you have to have these close partnerships and collaborations. It's going to be the government organizations, the NGOs, the nonprofits, and last but not least, you know, 80-plus percent of land in the eastern U.S. is owned by private forest landowners. And it's going to be those private forest landowners that we're going to lean on really heavily to get this tree back onto those lands because it, it, it's going to be they who really take charge and get the ecological impact of, of the species back into the forest. Any pushback from native plant people that say, well, you're introducing something and it's got a component that you engineered off of a Asiatic species, this could be catastrophic. So the, the Backcross work of the American Chestnut Foundation involves introducing Asian chestnut genes into the American, and some people are, are very um, against that. Uh, some people would prefer to just cross American chestnuts with one another, and uh, we've done that. We, we have some products of that. I, I mentioned those, you know, couple dozen of remnant American chestnuts that have resistance. So we have some breeding lines that are just American chestnut. And then when you look at the transgenic American chestnut, you know, it has its critics of, of their own. Um, there are many people who are very much against transgenic or genetic modification technology. So you kind of have these different camps of people who will only accept native plants or will only accept true breeding material. And we've tried to navigate all of those different communities and had conversations about, well, what is it that is creating this 
concern over safety and, and long-term safety. Now, we haven't been able to convince everyone. Uh, there are some people who are, are absolutely against either Asiatic genes or absolutely against transgenic technologies, and, and their minds won't be changed. But I will say I've, I've been doing this for about 20 years, and in general, I'd say the majority of people, because this is not a commercial product, because this is for healthy forests, people tend to be more accepting of the technologies that allow you to bring back healthy forests. That's fantastic. And I really liked your question, Hal, because that was in my thought too, about how, you know, you're bringing things up from the South and, you know, it's not native to this area because it's a slightly different genetic line, you know, but if we look at the human population and if we think about migration, migration is natural, normal, and expected from a global perspective. And man has been moving around the world pretty much the whole time. Why can't we help plants to do that to preserve the genetic lines? And the human race. And the human race, yeah. absolutely. I think that brings up a really good question of, of what is it what is it about native species that makes that important? You know, and you know, and in, in my mind, you know, our work is to restore the American chestnut, but it's to restore the ecosystem services provided by that tree. And and the whole point about native species and, and you know, having things native to a particular area is that it's performing ecological services important to that location, which is changing to your point about climate change, you know, that species that are now, quote unquote, native to a certain area is, is shifting. And so whatever we put out, we want to make sure that it's performing those ecosystem services. And one thing that really kind of highlighted this example for me are some of the challenges that people working with coral are facing. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're losing our coral um, at a, an alarming rate, and there are coral in the, uh, in the Bahamas and the, the Atlantic Ocean that they may not be able to be saved. You know, breeding programs are, are being worked on. People are working on trying to, to edit those native corals, and one solution has been brought up to Pacific corals into the Atlantic and establish them there. And so you have this same argument. Why should we bring in Pacific corals? They're not native to that area. It's, it's going to completely disrupt the ecosystem. Well, the alternative is no coral. So you start to think about, well, if the alternative is nothing or something that's not native but serves the ecosystem services, will that be a satisfactory solution? And so I think the argument is bigger than just native, non-native, or transgenic, not transgenic, or purity or not purity. It's really what's going to satisfy the basic ecosystem services that need to be served by that given species and the, the, the greater landscape. It's interesting that you brought up coral because I watched a show the other night about how they are growing coral in certain areas and then replanting it into the coral reefs. And they use a special compound to hitch it onto the other corals and they have to actually tap out with a hammer and put the put this like a putty substance in and then they put the attach the coral. And I, I kind of think very much like us planting trees even though corals are an animal species, it's very much like they are part of the forest of the ocean and that we are watching and using some of the techniques that we might be using here to plant a tree or to, to do something like that and to save something, as you're mentioning, to preserve and create a diversity that needs to be there. Yeah, I, I think it's very analogous, even though you would, you, at first you're like, well, you know, under the water versus, you know, the mountains of Appalachia, how do these two 
correspond. But yeah, I think I think the analogy is very apt and and really kind of brings home if you look at the diversity of of life that exists in these coral reefs. You know, a lot of people don't think about the diversity of insects and and animal life that exists in our forest. I think we're too close to it, right? To really think of it as as being special. But if you get up into the trees and you start to see the hundreds of species, if not thousands of species that depend upon healthy and diverse forest ecosystems of the eastern U.S., you'll start to see that that they truly are special and and much like our coral reefs you know they they deserve to be to be saved and restored early 1900s the blight comes in we lose the chestnuts we move forward 110 years reintroductions begin and man how much the world has changed in the 100 plus years since the disease first established itself in terms of, you know, incremental warming and everything else that's associated with the climate crisis. And then here we are reintroducing American chestnut. I There was a part of this article, uh, Sarah, where the writer's talking about hanging out with you in Cole Township. I've never been there, but I've seen other hard scrabble communities in the Poconos up around uh, Jim Thorpe and a couple towns in that immediate area. But then he goes on to talk about six years later, after a planting that I guess you and your team did, the chestnuts are thriving. They're 25 feet tall. That's very cool unto itself. But between them, there are yellow poplar, black locust, aspen, sumac, and something he's calling fire cherry trees. So everything is back to commingling, and it must be a fantastic site. Yeah, so that site is is open to the public. It's on a site called AOAA, the Anthracite Outdoor Adventure Area in, in Schuylkill County. And that is such a cool project because it's, again, really this mixture of a non-governmental organization, of corporate partners, of DCNR, and some people who really want to see the land restored. That piece of property was a county property that was an old mined area. Um, it, it was a wildcat mines were all over the place. People were going in there trying to steal coal and, and getting hurt because this, this land had been overused and, and misappropriated um, after it had been left as a legacy mine land. She had all these people come together and say, how can we use this land for good? And they created basically an ATV and all-terrain vehicle park. And you can go all throughout this land. I mean, there are thousands of acres that you can drive around, and it's really fascinating. And as part of that project, they wanted to also showcase various aspects of wildland rehabilitation. So there are bat caves and there are chestnut plantings and there are wetland restoration projects scattered throughout this property. So it it really showcases how you can come together and have multi-use recreation commingling with restoration projects in a single location. So, you know, I recommend if anyone gets a chance to go out and check it out, there are three different chestnut plantings along the main line area of AOAA. Do these new strains have an application in other coal mining reclamation sites where mountaintops have been leveled? And I know they're trying to figure out ways to get the bare roots and the saplings in. It sounds like chestnuts might be part of that palette. 
Yeah, so we've worked really closely with a couple different organizations. One's called ARRI, the Appalachian Regional Reforestation Initiative, and that's mainly overseen by the Office of Surface Mining, OSM. And then an NGO called Green Forests Work, and they're out of uh, the University of Kentucky and in, in Indiana. We've worked really closely with them to investigate chestnut as a high-value hardwood that can be used to restore both legacy and current mine lands. You know, the biggest issue with these mined properties is that you have to reclaim them in a way such that hardwood roots can establish themselves. If you look at a lot of the legacy mine lands, for example, in Pennsylvania, southwestern PA, where you've got a lot of highly compacted soils, it's very difficult to get hardwoods established. And, and it's very difficult unless you spend a lot of time and energy and money reclaiming these sites and ripping them up and ripping up that compaction. Chestnuts, oaks, tulip poplar, you can get them established, but you're spending about $1,000 an acre to reclaim it. And then if, if you can take these newer mines and convince mineland operators and regulators to reclaim in a different way, uh, what we call end dumping, it's the FRA approach or forest reclamation approach. If you can work with uh, regulators and mineland operators to use the FRA on their mine lands, then you can have really healthy forest ecosystems in as little as 20 years. So it's it's challenge. It doesn't work everywhere, um, but it's something that we really encourage and are, are working with those partners to implement. This is a really fascinating story that you're telling. It's mind-boggling, actually. Uh, it is. And, you know, when you're talking about the mines, and we used to go out to Western PA all the time, the old slag mines that we used to see in operation no longer there. But the one tree that does really well there is the black locust. And yeah. people always have a bad name for it. But I think black locust is a fabulous tree as a first successional plant in a really bad area. It's 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 a fabulous it's a fabulous tree. And, and it's rot-resistant also, like the chestnut. And fragrant flowers. And fragrant flowers, very good for pollinators, very yeah. high honey uh, coming from them. So I think that the interconnectivity of all the different organizations that you're working with, there must be a mind meld of so many different things happening. And maybe while you're trying to solve one problem, you're also coming up with solutions for others, which you might not even be aware of until you stumble across it. And you say to yourself, wow, you know, they've been trying to do X, Y, Z for such a long time. And now we've just discovered how we can solve that, that issue or problem. And I think that's really commendable. And for you to be in the organization for as long as you have, I think it's really fabulous. I wanted to ask you one question about a chestnut that a friend of mine bought years ago when you first were doing your releases. And what was called the Dunstan chestnut? Mm -hmm. And is that a pure line or is that one with which is crossed with Chinese chestnut? So the Dunstan chestnut is mostly a Chinese chestnut. And that's created by R.T. Dunstan. He was a chestnut breeder and he, he collected some American chestnuts from Ohio and mixed in with some Chinese chestnuts and then planted those trees on some property he had down in Florida and then let those interpollinate and then got the F2s and then let those interpollinate. And there are various different um, cultivars that were released from the Dunstan lines. One was called a Sweetheart Chestnut that they released in the 70s. Um, and now the Dunstans are widely cultivated. Um, you can find them at Walmart, at Lowe's, at the other big box stores. 
So we recently did molecular studies on Dunstan's and we recently looked at over 500 American chestnuts across the range to look at how much introgression of other species might be out in the remnant species. And there's not much in the remnant species. The remnant species is pretty much American chestnut, but Dunstan's popped out at about 96% Chinese chestnut. Wow. They are a nice tree. I don't want, I'm not trying to begrudge the name of, of the Dunstan tree. They, they do grow well and they, they can have high blight resistance and they produce lots of nuts and are, are great for things like deer, uh, but they're, they're not an American chestnut. Well, that's good to know because I was told that it's part American, part Chinese. Well, maybe 4%. <laughs> yeah, and, but here's the thing, you know, our genetic studies have become so wonderful and we, we can do so much more with genetic testing that back then we didn't have the technology that we have now. So we can pretty much be sure that we're going to get something that's 96% American chestnut and maybe 4% and just kind of reverse it. Well, and I think, you know, we started this conversation or midway, we, we talked about, well, you know, imagine where we are here now over a hundred years from when we lost the species and, and the kind of history that's happened in our forest since then. And, you know, when I, when I think about restoration, that's my job, right? My, my official title is director of restoration. But what, what I spend most of my time thinking about is how do we get these trees back into the woods and what sort of Herculean task is that going to be to go from zero resistant American chestnuts to say 10%, you know, of the native range. So let's say we're going to try and repopulate 10 million acres, uh, which is approximately 10% of suitable chestnut land. You know, looking at various estimates, that's going to take us at least 100, if not 200 years of planting millions of seedlings every year to make an ecological impact. And so I like to think of amazing advances we've had in molecular genetics that allow us to do the work that we're doing. You know, CRISPR is the big buzzword these days, you know, genetic engineering and and genetic editing, the things that we can do for human health. And it always takes a while to trickle down to plants <laughs> from, from humans. But, you know, there's going to be such amazing advances that we're going to see while, you know, we're starting restoration now. We've got plants on the landscape that have better resistance than the wild type American chestnuts. But just, just think how much more technology we'll have available to improve, you know, not just American chestnut, but these other challenges that we're facing as long as we have that long range vision and, and the connection to forest. If we can keep that and, and make people recognize and have people recognize how important a healthy and diverse forests are, you know, we'll be able to take advantage of that into the future. A lot of people are going to love this podcast. And, and love the wisdom that you shared, and then start Googling, I want chestnuts in my backyard. Any particular website or suggestions on finding plants for the homeowner? Because if we can get homeowners planting, we're going to get a lot of trees planted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, acf.org, americanchestnutfoundation.org. Yeah, so acf.org, we... Um, so we make available uh, wild-type American chestnuts. That's the best place for people to start. So wild American chestnuts, they don't have any resistance, but that's a great place for people to get started with growing chestnuts to learn about the suitability, site suitability of what these species like, to learn about all the critters that like to eat them. <laughs> and if you're going to plant something and, and lose it for whatever reason, you know, make it something that's relatively expendable. You know, all of our most advanced material, our breeding material, um, any of the transgenic material that comes out, you know, upon deregulation, 
uh, the first people that will have access to that will be members of the foundation. So, you know, we hope folks will join and support the research that we're doing. And like I said, all of our members, we will provide uh, American chestnut seeds to. We do um, American chestnut seedling sales every February. They, we sell out within hours. But, you know, the seedlings go fast. The seeds go a little bit less fast. We usually have material that people can learn how to plant. And uh, basically, you just take a chestnut, <laughs> you put it in the ground, and you you protect it from all the critters that want to eat it, and, and you get a tree. So, you know, acf.org, we've got lots of resources for people wanting to know more about the species, figuring out how to get involved. They can be definitely planting trees. We still need people out there finding trees. Uh, there's a great app called Tree Snap. If people want to download on that, that on their phone, TreeSnap is uh, an application that was put together by the University of Kentucky and the U.S. Forest Service and then various other scientific partners, which is a way of tracking these species that are in peril. So American chestnuts, eastern hemlock, your ash species, uh, white oak is headed toward being in trouble. And then a, a species from Florida, that is uh, the terea, is going the way of, of endangerment. So TreeSnap is a way for people to get involved and, and help scientists tracking the current locations of these species. Telling the story is really important. And just, you know, this species has been lost from the consciousness. You know, people don't go chestnutting anymore. Why, why should people care about the American chestnut? I care because I grew up in the Southern Appalachians and my grandfather talked about it a lot. And that seems to be a really common theme, you know, of, of people's grandparents. And, you know, pretty soon, I guess, great grandparents will have, have talked poetically about this species. So people can just talk passionately about saving diversity and restoring diversity of our Eastern forest. That's a really important factor, too, is just getting people to understand how important it is to save the diversity in our forest, restore it, and, and keep healthy, sustainable, resilient forests in the eastern U.S. in particular. Well, this has been a terrific conversation, Sarah. Um, a great way for uh, our listeners to get indoctrinated at all different levels. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for all the great work. Thank all your colleagues up there at Penn State as well. And it uh, makes me very excited about American chestnut and also for healing portions of communities that have been uh, scarred with losses, you know, in the in the mountain tops and the coal mining communities. I just feel we're really blessed that we had you on the show today and you imparted some really great wisdom and information for our listeners. We're not even going to ask the question about what tree is your favorite because we already know. <laughs> You've been living alongside it and breathing it, eating it, sleeping it, whatever, however way you want to say it, uh, for for 20 years. And I think it's really a great tribute to the fact that you're so dedicated to this particular conservation arm of Penn State. Well, well, thanks so much. I really appreciate your all's interest. Good luck with everything, Sarah. Yes. Thanks so much. You too. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.
Oh, my God.